0: It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com.
1: Welcome back to the Best Of series. While Cricket Unfiltered is on a short break. And uh, in the second installment of the Best Of series, I have um, an episode that I recorded with Gideon Hay in October 2018. The interview was about the sandpaper scandal in South Africa and I think it is one of the best discussions about the topic, mainly because of the fantastic insights that Gideon brings to the podcast. He had written a book, Crossing the Line, which is still a great read. Go and read it. But yeah, this is a great insight into what happened in in South Africa and how it happened. So enjoy this interview from 2018 with Gideon Hay. Hello everyone and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host Andrew Menzel, aka Meners, and joining me today, I have the eminent cricket writer who describes himself as an independent journalist who writes for The Times
0: and The Australian. Welcome to the show, Gideon Hay. How are you, Gideon? I'm all right. Some would think that's a paradoxical concept, but... Uh, what, well, independent journalist? Independent within News Corporation, but uh, but that's the way I feel. Um, I certainly don't, uh, don't feel as though I have to toe any particular editorial line. I say what I think and I do as I please. Excellent. Well, good to have you on the show because today... The two unofficial
1: cultural reviews into Australian cricket (laughs) intersect on this podcast. (laughs) So regular Mm. listeners will know that I have been conducting my own review into Australian cricket over the winter. And now uh, I'm with the eminent Gideon Hay, who's just released a fantastic book called Mm. Crossing the Line. Uh, Where can you get Crossing the Line, Gideon? Where do you recommend?
0: Gee, that's a good question. Um, ask my publisher. I'm constantly walking into bookshops and not being able to find it, but, um, but I dare say that it's, uh, it's out there in most of the major indie stores. Uh, sorry if it hasn't reached you. If you can't get it there, you can order it through the Slattery Media website. I mean, your, your approach to doing this cultural review is very different to mine. Um, you've actually been getting people to talk on the record um, for public quotation, When I set out to do mine, I took the opposite approach. I wanted people to speak candidly without the fear of necessarily seeing their remarks turn up in the newspaper the next day. I spoke to 50 people. Uh, I said, look, um, none of this will be for attribution. I'll protect your confidentiality, but I would like you in return to speak as candidly as you can. If there are any anecdotes that you tell me which might identify you, I'll... I won't use them, but um, but just give me a feeling for the way in which you're thinking and the way in which you've been thinking over the last four or five years. And people responded, I think, in, in kind. It's a difficult environment to to say exactly what you think in Australian cricket. You know, Australian cricket, or Cricket Australia, is a monopoly employer of, um, or monopoly stager of cricket talent and a monopsony employer of, uh, of cricket personnel – uh, there is a bit of a tendency towards conformity. There is a tendency to pull your punches because um, of the potential consequences for your future employment. I don't have that same hang-up, but, uh, but other people do, and I, and I understand and, and, and respect that. So, uh, so I gave people the opportunity to use my book as a forum for their views, and it was interesting to see how closely often their, uh, their views mirrored mine. Yeah, I feel like on my review,
1: I sort of scratched the surface Mm. and, you know, spoke to some cricketers, Hazelwood, Neville and Mm. journalists. But your book kind of fills in the rest of the picture. Okay, thanks. Um, So it's a fantastic read. I do notice, though, that speaking to the Aussie cricketers, I think Mm. they realise they need to be a bit more... Willing to go on record yeah, with opinions, yeah, yes, and um, even you know Josh Hazelwood, who new vice captain, I think he's yes. really sees the need to actually so show some leadership, and part yes. of that is going to the, the press yes. and saying what you think.
0: Yes, I mean, interesting his remarks to you about um, uh, Lehman in the last few years of, uh, of of his coaching career, they were very strongly echoed by by people that I spoke to that Lehman had stayed too long, considerably too long, some felt. They were apt to point out that you know it's a very, very tough gig. You are travelling incessantly. Um, if you're not in the greatest of health, if you're not in the greatest frame of mind, uh, it's very easy just to slip into the habit of, of going through the motions or repeating yourself. That's one of the challenges of coaching, isn't it? We, we always say that cricket's a simple game. How do you go on making that an interesting game to play without just simply repeating yourself and and sort of coming up with clichés that uh, that soon lose their interest. How do you go about developing a culture that doesn't simply become inward looking and 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 self-reinforcing? How do you go about creating an environment that's safe for individuals but is all about the purposes of the team? It's an ongoing challenge. I don't think any coach would say that they've got it 100% right. The position of the national team in relation to the rest of the game in Australia is unique in Australian sport. Uh, it makes up its own rules. It's very easy to think that it's exceptional. But in the end, individuals are just flesh and blood and they respond to the same kind of inspirations. The same They have the same kind of strengths and weaknesses. Cricket is a game that, uh, if it doesn't build character, certainly reveals it. Uh, and, you know, we learned some very interesting human lessons as well as cricket lessons uh, from what happened at Newlands.
1: Absolutely. And, and look, I just before we get into the real nuts and bolts yeah. of it, I am going to be pretty strident, and I'm sure you are. I've read your book. Sure. Um, but I just want to give the listeners an, an insight into why you wrote the book. I mean, I know why I okay. did the review. It's because I'm a, a passionate cricket mm. fan, and I want there to be some accountability, and I want to get the the truth out there so you know you, you try and ask people questions and I love the game and I care mm, about the team yes. so I want it to thrive and I want to be proud of our national
0: team but, but why did you write this book? Well I love the game too. Uh, I've been a Critical observer of, of some of its trends and, and directions over the last few years, and I've heard an undercurrent of, of discontent about certain aspects of, uh, of, of cricket and its promotion and its diffusion in Australia. I was actually in Niora that night. You can see on the back of my laptop here, I love Niora. Um, I was uh, speaking at, uh, at a presentation night for a cricket club up there. It's a little town in Gippsland, very picturesque. A uh, friend of mine who I used to play cricket with at the Arrows, he's the captain coach down there. Harry inv- had invited me down there to, uh, to talk to the guys. Had a really good night. Always do it at cricket functions like that. Love the social side of the game. Free beer. Free beer. Uh, really fun. Sausages. Yeah. The, the great thing about cricket clubs is that they're all different and they're all the same. You know, the characters, the names are different, but often you you, know, you, you recognise the types. And the, the gags have a certain reassuring similarity to them <laughs> uh, as well as uh, you know the occasional shaft of, of uniqueness and Harry and I went back to his place that night and we sat on the couch and we watched the test match from South Africa and we saw the incident the uh, sandpaper storage incident and we both looked at each other and we went who you know what was that what was that you know usually when you see something like that on a cricket field you think oh there must be some other explanation for that or there must be some factor that we don't understand or later all will be revealed but we didn't we thought we know what we've just seen, and there'll be some interesting consequences of that. I, the next thing I knew, I, I woke up. I was woken up at about sort of four in the morning by a text from a friend of mine who doesn't know anything about cricket, but she said um, Smith will have to go. And I thought, well, hang on a second, that's pretty um, that's pretty strong. I thought, you know, well, cricket does have statutes and codes of conduct that are meant to deal with incidents about uh, excessive ball maintenance. Uh, and I texted back saying, oh, no, I think that you know, there'll, there'll be punishments meted out, but I don't think there'll be all that consequential. Well, there you go. I was a fool because <laughs> I treated it like a cricket story. In fact, it was a cultural story. It was a story about how the national team sits in relation to, uh, to, to the public. It, um, it was a slow news Sunday, wasn't it? Uh, the Prime Minister got involved. Almost immediately the, the ante was upped. There was a sense of kind of panic and, and disorder. There was a sense of the Australian cricket had been riding for a fall, perhaps, for the, for the previous year. Perhaps they didn't realise quite how badly they were travelling with the public and that maybe people had been looking for an issue to rally around to express their dissatisfaction. And they certainly there was a massive pile on. It was a egged on that that social media echo chamber effect, everyone sort of competing with one another to to be more and more outraged. And before we knew it, we had a crisis on our hands. I know I left Niora that morning having watched the press conference by that stage, and I thought, yeah, this is going to be a problematic. It's not just what's happened on the field, it's that air of, impenitence and impunity that, uh, that Smith exuded at the press conference, particularly that last question where he responded to the idea that, you know, maybe he wasn't the best man to Captain Australia, where well, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, I think I still am. And I think people wanted to reach out and tap him on the shoulder and say, well, Captain, that's not so fast. That's not really your call. You, Captain, at our indulgence, we want you to be proud. We want to be proud of you, and, uh, and you've let, you've let us down. Perhaps if the Australians hadn't held that press conference that night, the story would have taken a subtly different shape. If they'd simply put up the uh, the, the ramparts and allowed some of the, the steam to escape from the, uh, from the punctured valve, they would have had a, a chance to get their story straight. But as it is, the story just outpaced their capacity to deal with it.
1: Yeah, I think just talking about that press conference, I think Cricket Australia failed in their duty of care towards Smith yeah. and Bancroft uh, for letting them go out there and say that. And, I mean, you look at the sort of the the South African team when Faf was um, accused of ball tampering, they didn't say anything. You know, they they hid Faf from the press and it would have been a much smarter thing to send someone like Graham Hick out there uh, the batting coach. He would have been asked questions. He could have said, look, I'm the batting coach. I'm not sure. A- and as you say, they could have worked out this this story. But well, the tr-
0: the trouble was that when they went out there, they presented themselves as honest and of course, they were economical with the truth. But what is interesting is that you know, who was the ranking official or the ranking figure in that Australian dressing room at close of play? You had coach assistant coach captain vice captain team manager. Team, it has manager, to be the team manager media 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 manager who's wired into her boss in in Melbourne you have a chief executive you have an EGM they're back in Australia there was a sense that everyone seemed to be looking at everyone else to go so what do we do now and who makes the call and I think Smith probably got to the end of that and thought well I'm the captain uh, it is my responsibility in 2016 at Bell Reve Oval uh, I got a lot of credit for the fact that I fronted up to the press and was honest and and frank about the way in which I was <laughs> feeling. As, as you say, he <laughs> wasn't, and he wasn't. And but the the very fact that you know the very first question, which came from Pete was, you know, so talks through that captain, Smith turns to Bancroft and says, so uh, maybe you'd like to do that, which was a terrible look, and it just got worse and worse from from that point.
1: Absolutely shocking, and I would suggest that there's been a lot of crisis management training uh, (laughs) in Cricket Australia in the last six months. I've been trying to work on a blame pie, and what I want to do with you, Gideon, is sort of work from who I think is most to to blame for what happened in South Africa and sort of work back but I guess there's a couple of things I want to point out is that Cricket Australia have these they had two reviews that they commissioned they have them now Mm -hmm. they're holding on to them they
0: know what's in them yet
1: we still don't
0: know what's in them
1: which I find perplexing
0: yes they've had them more or less for the last month in Mm -hmm. fact and there's you would have thought that they were pretty significant in the uh, certainly in the governance of the game. One of them, the, the Longstaff Review, is explicitly calibrated towards the governance and management of the game. We've got the AGM for Cricket Australia taking place next week where the, the chairman will seek a, a second three-year term. You would have thought that the states, before they had the opportunity to vote, would have liked to have seen an independent assessment of how Australian cricket got into its predicament. And
1: who's responsible.
0: Well, yes, yeah. So, yes, uh, all sorts of uh, riddles inside, conundrums inside, enigmas in Australian cricket, even now.
1: <laughs> and just finally, before we get into the blame mm. pie, about some elements to your book. I think it is one very good view of Australian cricket from the, the Aussie team's point of view and the way it's managed. Um, but I do think it's not the whole story. Like, no, sure. uh, So, the last couple of years, I've been to more, say, Big Bash and Women's Big Bash mm. than I'd ever been to before. And... There is a wonderful feeling around those competitions, those games. Even I know walking around the streets, I see more people playing cricket on the streets than I think they did a few years ago Mm -hmm. because of the prevalence of the women's Big Bash and the men's Big Bash. So I think that counter to the way the Australian team is tracking, actually there are elements to cricket in this country that are very healthy. So when we give a scathing report mm. on cricket australia as we're about to do i think it, it should be seen through that prism i think that they do get a lot right about the the management of the game they obviously get some things wrong but i feel quite enthused when i go to see these the big bash the families and the smiles and the kids that uh, are really starting to uh, be attracted to these new stars that
0: aren't the australian team well by no means do i sp- present a monolithically sour perspective in fact the book concludes on quite an optimistic note you know, perhaps it was to do with coming into a new season i always feel optimistic at the start of a new season because i'm you know i'm about to go out and play again myself uh there's something Feeling in good form there's something reassuring and exciting about that there's also a sense of the unknown about this summer that's one of the great things about um the, the situation in which we find ourselves now, over the last few years, there's been a bit of a sense of monotony about the prospect of the Australian summer. We know that the, the overseas team will come, it'll get slaughtered because we play great flat wicket cricket in Australia, we're bullies in our own backyard. Uh, you kind of dread that a bit uh, as a writer. And Smith and & Warner are our and best Smith players. And Water, omnipotent rain. So, in a sense, I love the fact that we there's a state of kind of confusion. From a journalist's perspective, we don't want too much stability. We actually like a bit <laughs> of, 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 of volatility. And you're right. Um, the game reaches more people now in more different ways than it did 10 years ago. That's Part of that is to do with the increased financial rewards the the increased prosperity of uh, of of cricket australia it's and frankly it is better to have a rich game than a poor game a lot of a lot of games would kill for the disadvantages that uh, that that cricket australia is uh, is is suffering under and you're right in the sense that the connection between the australian team and the state of australian cricket is sometimes felt to be you know exact you know that they're kind of synonymous with with one another and they're not uh that's why you know um, what happens in the UAE is kind of both hugely significant and fundamentally pretty trivial as I, as i wrote a couple of of weeks ago sometimes the strength of the of the game is to be ascertained kind of the, the changes that are being wrought in the game now will perhaps have consequences ten years in the future for the next generation of players who emerge uh, from a from a, a BBL generation, if you like, who who perhaps go on to to international honours. It's a little bit like you know the light from stars in the heavens that that left those stars you know, many thousands of years ago and only now are, are reaching them. We get to we get to see how the game is travelling at grassroots level. 10 years ago, if you like, by the consequences of, uh, of, of what transpires in the national team now. But I think at the same time, certain things have been happening for long enough in Australian cricket or around the Australian cricket team for us to be somewhat alarmed, particularly in terms of our capacity for travelling. You know, we're a poor team overseas and we have been a poor team for quite some time. And that's not something I associate with Australian cricket teams of the past we have traditionally been tough overseas and resilient. You know, the, the, the great players of the previous generation were remarkable wherever they went. But if you look at the discrepancy between the home and away records of a Sean Marsh and a Mitchell Marsh... There's a huge gulf there, and that's got to be accounted for by the way in which we're developing players. So you just triggered many listeners <laughs> well, yeah. with bringing up the Marshes. Well, the Marshes, yeah, they were a bit of a hot-button issue. At
1: the I know moment. you're not on social media, but the Marshes featured
0: pretty prominently uh, mm. yesterday. Yeah, and and isn't it strange that we've devoted more and more resources to the national team over the last four or five years. We've created an entire kind of bureaucracy and a department around them and a high performance wing. Uh, Our players are paid more, they are better resourced, they are more secure, they are physically better equipped, they're psychologically better honed and yet the minute that they step um, onto foreign shores, they become an accident waiting to happen. And don't let's forget that what happened in Cape Town, before it was a moral failure, was a cricket failure. Uh, you know, that particular test match, South Africa made 311, not a huge first-inning first score. We went from none for 43 to eight for 175. Once again, the batting let us down, and it was up to the bowlers and the fielders to somehow make up the difference, to push... The line, that ever-present line, to, uh, to do whatever it takes to, uh, to to claw that game back and certain people lost perspective about what was fair play and, and what wasn't and uh, and we succumbed to uh, to our own demons.
1: So let's not talk around who who is to blame for what happened in South Africa. Now let's start to uh, name names, so to speak. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the high-performance department, but Pat Howard's high-performance department has a special place in um my heart because I think it's complete a mess and I've said it many times and I don't like calling for people's jobs but I also think that in these sort of roles as high performance or even a coach of a national team they should always be seen as temporary and so it's not like you're calling for someone's full-time job for 20 years to be um, removed so but we'll get there let's start the blame pie I'm gonna I'm gonna start at the coalface who I think is most to blame and sort of work back and you can just help me along, Gideon. So I do want to touch on that the players did not appeal their length of the ban, which I think is significant because I think that the Australian Cricketers Association wanted them to appeal. That's my uh, belief. Um, and I think Greg Dice said, Similar comments. Yes. So the fact that these players have copped it on the chin, and I, I heard you say that there was an over eagerness by Cricket Australia to lay the blame on the players.
0: There was a desire to confine the blame to define the uh, the proportions of the blame. The investigation that was done by Ian Roy, the integrity officer, was confined entirely to this particular incident. It took no cognizance of Australia's ball maintenance practices over the preceding two or three years. It set out to provide the answers that were most convenient to cricket. That's not a criticism of Ian, that's the that was simply the terms of reference under under which he operated. We still don't know how pervasive those kind of ball maintenance practices were in that Australian team. We don't know how we don't know how widespread they are in international cricket. You now, I've, and I've heard some quite alarming stories in the course of my investigations about how pervasive they they actually are. The strange thing is that even now, if super sports cameras hadn't been quite so vigilant on that particular day, well, they, they, were in, after the Aussies, they were going after the odds. They were, yeah, we'd exist in complete ignorance. And but I suspect that, as I said before, the Australian team had gotten into the habit over the preceding couple of years of going right up to the line. The line is was a recurrent theme in their public comments. They showed a greater aptitude and tolerance for pushing the game to the limit. And perhaps in hindsight, we shouldn't be all that surprised that eventually they stumbled over that limit and, and, and tripped themselves up. It's not as though Australian cricket is any more kind of aggressive or um, or in, inclined to seek 1% advantages than, than anybody else. We are the only country around the world that's made a bit of an explicit policy about that and have actually been pretty proud and pretty ex- exhibitionistic about the way in which we approach the game. You don't find... England players or Indian players talking about you know we um well, South we, Africa we, we push things to the South limit. Africa are good at it. They're and good I, at it, but they don't go around advertising it, and they don't go around kind of aping one another's behaviours. And it's not quite so obvious that it's premeditated as it was with I the think, Australians. I mean, over we'll the get to it. But I think
1: years. Rabada... The shenanigans around Robada sure. was pretty disingenuous. Oh, by incredibly South disingenuous! And the ICC and undermines the ICC. The, the,
0: well, the well, the ICC handled it appallingly. There was no grounds for that appeal whatsoever, and I think that he should have been suspended. It was absurd behaviour. The um, the 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 finding that was made by the New Zealand jurist uh, over there was just a mess. It conduced to a feeling of embattlement in that Australian side. The if you look at the the, the preceding two test matches, the, the, the Durban and PE games, they were, players, they were games played in a pretty bad spirit. You'd had the confrontation between Warner and Dukok. You'd had the, the Rabada and, and Smith. You'd had the the general air of the combative uh, South African crowds.
1: Oh, the, 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 the striking thing. Is, the
0: striking thing is that here's the Australian team surrounded by these many layers of management, uh, it has its team psychologist over there. It has a, a number of senior experienced officials. And no one seems to know how badly that team is traveling. No one seems to know the risks that, that lie in wait for it. So that's a, that's a failure of, of leadership. And it's not only Steve Smith's.
1: Yeah. All right. So let's start the blame pie with, uh, let's start with David Warner. Because despite the, the factors that go into it, he was still the player that in the end gave Cameron Bancroft the sandpaper and said, let's do it. And uh, there was, I know there was rumours floating around about, you know, he had his hand taped uh, for a while. You know, perhaps there was something funny going on with that, the way he was getting the ball abrasive. But uh, what I noticed about Warner is that, Everybody just took for granted that he didn't need a break. So he played the Ashes, yeah, yeah. then he played the One Dayers, and then the whole Test team was getting ready for South Africa. But because Warner's the bull, because he is seen as this sort of fit Iron Man character, we thought, yeah, he can captain our T Twenty side, yes. and then he can just fly into the Test series and 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 go on like that. Nothing's nothing's wrong. Whereas I think there was a significant burnout for Warner. Yes. That led to his actions.
0: Yeah, I think that I, I think to a degree there was it was reasonably well-meaning. I think there was Pat Howard wanted to. There was after the pay dispute last year, Warner was not travelling well with with Cricket Australia. I think that um, that part of the desire on on Howard's part was to kind of re assimilate him by putting him into a, into a leadership role, and and Warner does a very good job in those roles. Um, you know He's been an excellent captain in Australia's short form cricket. Uh, as, as one of his teammates put it to me, Dave has a busy mind and you need to find things to, to fill it. And when he's captain, he has those things. He has the stature. He has the kudos. He has the position and he likes it. And he turns his attention under those circumstances towards his teammates rather than to opponents. He's he's a natural leader. He aspires to those kind of roles. Whereas I think Steve Smith kind of fell into the role of Australian captain because he's the best player, which is a bit of an Australian tradition. But I don't think he was quite ready for it. I, I honestly don't. And I think the dynamic as a result between Warner and Smith was, had been problematic for, for some time. Uh, well before things um, transpired at New Orleans.
1: You point out that you know there was a little bit of a healthy rivalry between Smith and Warner with the bat, but also Warner was an aspiring captain, uh, although he, he didn't look like he'd be Aussie captain. Do you think Warner is a bad guy?
0: No, I don't. No, Not at all. Not at all. He's, uh, he's immensely driven. He's hugely dedicated. He could easily have ignored... Um, international duties. You know, he's a man who could make himself extremely wealthy by concentrating simply on playing short-form cricket. He could do a uh, Chris could, Gale. He could be a Chris Gale, precisely. But I don't he think, might still be. I don't, think, I don't think that would satisfy him. Uh, I think he really does value the baggy green, seriously. I think he... Uh, th- but the, let's face it, the role of the ambitious deputy in a semi-successful side is always a somewhat ambivalent one. For every individual success and every collective failure, your kind of cause is advanced. You need only look at the adver- example of Michael Clark in the last couple of years of his deputyship of, of Ricky Ponting. They're going about Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think that Warner was perhaps at times a little bit found it difficult to hide the, the scale and, and scope of his ambition, and I think he's a much more naturally forthright character and, than Smith. And Smith is turn to Smith for a moment you know that the youthful exterior hides a youthful interior I've heard you say yeah. that before he's yeah, his uh, boyish face hides he, a boyish interior. he does I mean he does I mean he's um he came into that Australian captaincy like a penny into a slot you know if you look at even a year before he uh, he he rose to eminence no one really factored him in as a potential leadership candidate it was the concatenation of circumstances the the death of Philip Hughes, the, uh, the injury, the ongoing injury problems to Michael Clark, the kind of the, the, the tailing off of, of Brad Haddon's career, and then the retirement in very short order of a, of a group of highly successful and experienced players, you know, your Chris Rogers, your Ryan Harris's and your, and your Shane Watson's that suddenly forced both Smith and Warner into prominence, perhaps before they were quite ready for it. It became a very inexperienced dressing room in a relatively short period of time. And we'll turn to the coach in a moment, but I think that's one of the reasons why the coach became such an important figure, and it became and the idea of a continuity of of, of Lehman's tenure uh, became pretty fundamental to uh, to Australian cricket. Absolutely,
1: I just want to move from Warner to Cameron Bancroft because you shouldn't ignore the man that actually took the the sandpaper out there, and you point out. He's not a very young man. He was 25 yeah, when he yeah, did it. He wasn't yeah. 18, 19-some kid.
0: Very experienced um, cricketer.
1: Yeah, played You know, played under Justin Langer, who has a very strong moral compass. So he must have known what he was doing was wrong, and he probably failed the biggest test of his life so far. But I just hope it doesn't
0: define him. Interesting. I interviewed um, Bancroft in 2016 for, for The Australian. At that stage, he hadn't played test cricket. He'd been picked on that tour of Bangladesh in, in 2015. The tour had been cancelled uh, for for various reasons, and he'd at that stage it was quite, quite possible he would not play Test cricket for for australia and i you know I asked him how he felt about that, expecting in a way some sort of flippant answer you know some sort of um, answer you know well you know what will be will be uh you know I'm just got my head down determined to wear the bag of green and he i uh, could hear in the cracking of his voice the devastation that he felt at losing out on that opportunity. And I remember walking away from that interview feeling uh, as though well, boy, I really hope you do play Test cricket because you clearly really, really want to. But maybe you want it too much. You know, do, is it possible to want it too much? Well maybe Cameron Bancroft did crave it a little bit too much and that he fell in with a desire to do Whatever was necessary, whatever he was asked, he was the kind of player who would have charged through a brick wall for his coach. But sometimes that's just not very sensible. Well, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, do, do you think he'll make it back
1: to the Aussie team?
0: I think he will have learned a lot. I think he's intelligent enough to uh, to absorb the the lessons that that he experienced in uh, in Newlands. He's not a great player. He's got some he's got some technical issues, some ongoing technical issues which. I think you're going to prevent him from being a guy who averages 45. He might average 35. And I think there's got to be a question about whether that's quite good enough. He might find himself slipping back in the picking order as a result. You could. T- it was interesting when he came back and gave his press conference at the Wacker. He was asked, you know, what was the worst thing about it? It was the fact that he'd given up his spot without... Yeah, just giving up his just t- giving spot. Just giving up his spot. Team. And actually, that wasn't the most devastating thing about what had transpired. No, he was, should, I don't think he
1: should have said that. He shouldn't
0: know. have said that, but it was clear that it was the the overwhelming emotion going through his head at that time, precisely because he knows that incumbency really matters in Australian cricket. You know, you, well, you, I don't think it does. Position, well, my, <laughs> maybe, uh, Matt maybe not, maybe not quite Hanscom. so much. Yeah, well, I think you know, once you get that opportunity to fail and to slip back... You are penalised as a result. You slip down in the pecking order and you are expected to work your passage back. And Bancroft will have to score overwhelming amounts of runs in order to justify his his re-inclusion. All
1: right, listeners, so we're, we're halfway through our cultural review on the podcast today. We're going to take a quick break. Before we take a break, I just want to remind you all that if you can go on to whatever app you listen to the show on and rate and review the show, that would be much appreciated. Since the last podcast, we've had four great reviews on iTunes. Uh, Mitchell Hall asked... Uh, which team could take down the West Indies team of the eighties? Could our invincible Aussies do it? What do you think, Gideon?
0: Depends on where they played. If they played in Sydney, <laughs> we the would Aussie have had a good league, chance. Yeah. Sydney during the eighties, we always had a pretty good record Bouncy against we them there. In Barbados yeah, might be a difficult. Yeah, I mean the difficult thing about the West Indies now is that the pitches in the, around the world are so bland. Um, you know, they actually did a bit for, uh, for, for that attack during the 1980s. They, they, were a, they were a terrific side, but they tended to win in only the one way. I think that perhaps contemporary cricket, contemporary cricket might demand a little bit more of them.
1: Um, Shiki also called me a cricket journalist. Thank you, Shiki. I'll, I'll <laughs> dine on that one. Red Lantern was more spot on when he called me a consummate cricket tragic. And thanks for Tones1986, who t- tuned in for the great analysis Gideon and I were talking about our review. Last week, Pat Cummins begged to come on the show, Mm -hmm. so we couldn't talk too much about the Test Series versus Pakistan Mm -hmm. because we were mid-Test, so I couldn't tell Pat to wait till after the Test. So next week, uh, I'll be back in News Corp HQ to wrap up this car crash of a Test Series in the UAE that Australia look like they're going to lose. All right, let's take a quick break, and then Gideon and I will be back to conclude the review into Australian Cricket. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, Mena's and Gideon Hay here. And we're halfway through our cultural review now. The Blame Pie. So far we've got Warner and Bancroft. I'm gonna skip right now to I think his third in culpability, Pat Howard. We touched on it before. I was completely astounded at some of the information in your book about what he's done since he's been in the role. And When his contract was renewed, I think early last year, early 2017, I wrote something about I just couldn't believe that they were keeping him on. You know, not just some of the things that you touch on in his book, but simple things like I don't think the Australian cricket team has adapted to a climate of dealing with three formats and we're not good at any of them. I mean, you point out we're not number one in any of the formats at at the moment and we struggled at them. But there was something in your book that that for me typified how out of touch Pat Howard was Mm -hmm. and – it was an email he sent to the players after Australia lost the first test against Bangladesh mm-hmm. in it Bangladesh. Actually, it was
0: actually around the co- coaching staff, elite coaching staff in uh, in, in Australia, and it was um, it's become known as the uh, Cafe and Daca email <laughs> because it uh, it circulated fairly widely. But but the
1: thing that the line that sticks out for me, he writes about the Bangladesh cricket team. I am reasonably confident that many of the players that have just beaten us would not have get a run in any of our state teams. Now, that to me is, I don't know, has he got black glasses on his blind? Because that's just not true. I mean, that Bangladesh team is a good team, especially at home. And if if we played on spinning wickets, a lot of them would make our shield sides. And to say that to coaches who coach you, I just think that's blatantly insulting. But not only that, it just shows he just doesn't know what's going on.
0: Yeah, and the coaches were pretty dirty about it. And that's, of course, how the email got to me because people went, you know, come on, Pat, that's just ridiculous. And it, it has become a bit of a byword in Australian cricket that you only ever hear from Pat when you lose. He's not very good at encouraging, but he's pretty good at flaying people alive when he feels as though they've fallen short. Pat's good in the sense that he, I think, he does take responsibility for things. You know, he doesn't hide. Blame is a bit of an orphan at Cricket Australia, and, and Pat is prepared to take it on board. And he does back his people. Uh, he's a strong-willed and determined man. He's very analytical. I mean, um, Pat does have great strengths. Um, He's very numerate. Um, he's, He's very energetic. He's very dedicated. I think he genuinely cares about Australian cricket. He's not simply leveraging off this as an opportunity to go elsewhere. But he sort of doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he tends to underestimate what he doesn't know. And he tends to think, unfortunately, that he's the smartest person in every room. That's a recurrent refrain in assessments of, uh, of Pat Howard, that he, he talks a lot, but he doesn't really listen. You know, Pat was appointed to his role as a single point of accountability for Australian team performance by the Argus Review in, in 2011.
1: And I have information that people in rugby circles could not believe he was <laughs> taken on by Cricket Australia.
0: I, I, I do actually remember at the time that he was appointed, I, um, I did a bit of a ring-around of, of people in rugby to get their sense of him, as you would. you know. I didn't know very much about him. And I can remember a very senior coach laughing uproariously to me, saying, well, he's your problem now. <laughs> and he has been. Yeah, but look, he's created that role out of nothing. He's, and but what, what does he do? Well, he, kind of, he, do he, try, he tries to kind of create a sort of an analytical structure, a, a logical means by which Australian players can develop uh, and then sort he picks of tick dinosaurs like roles. Greg Chappell yeah. and
1: Trevor Hone. So on one hand, he's yeah. looking to the future and the other, he's locked in the past.
0: Well, he I mean, it's um, the organic processes that used to go to the training and, and maturation of Australian cricket seem to have been suspended in favour of a kind of a, a, a bureaucratic system, which is... Completely mired in metrics, and uh, but strangely remains just as subjective as it, as it always has been, and with the ultimate subjectivity of the uh, selectors, who just seem sometimes to choose players almost at random. Well, not random, but according to completely different considerations, according to whoever is the is the latest brainstorm. So it's it's it's, it's the a, whim of the day. It, it is the whim of the day. Pat, I think, would feel more comfortable with a more rigorous system. He has all been about trying to introduce rigor, and to a certain degree, that's you know, that's not that's not a bad thing. But you know, but I would have liked a I would have liked someone in that role who actually had a greater cricket heritage. I, I'm not I'm not a, against the idea of learning from other sports, but he was p- chosen at a very particular time, In 2011, after losing the Ashes in the wake of the Argus review, uh, the loss of. Ricky Ponting um, as, as captain, the rise of Michael Clark, the appointment of a new selection panel. It was as though we were trying different things. We wanted to be an innovative and open game. We wanted to be looking at how other sports did things. And Pat kind of got in through that, that brief period of glasnost, mm. if you like, in, in Australian cricket. I'm not sure that he'd necessarily be appointed today. But he was uh, just renewed 18 months ago. He just, was just renewed 18, 18 months ago. That's what I understand. He's, he's, had, he's had very good luck with the, uh, with the periods of the renewal of his contract. They've often come sort of immediately after good performances by the Australian team. And don't forget, in 2014, when we beat South Africa in South Africa, we were, for a brief period, the number one team in the world and Pat could walk around and say, well, yeah, look. Is that on his business card? Well, he was pretty proud of himself as a a result. And frankly, you know, he should be proud of himself. That was a good team. But it didn't win perhaps for the reasons that he imagined. It won because it was a very resourceful team with a lot of very good and experienced and smart cricketers. The success of that team wasn't a huge affirmation of the system. It was a huge affirmation of Mitchell Johnson, Mitchell Johnson, for a period, was an Ryan absolutely Harris. irresistible force. You know, in that period, he took like fifty-one wickets at fifteen in that in that particular season, which is half the average he he showed for the rest of his career. It was it was a kind of an anomaly. It was a perfect storm, and we were foolish to generalise and say that Australian cricket, as a result, was was in rude health.
1: So, I mean, I think Howard's responsible for a lot. And as I said, I, I don't like calling for someone's job, but I think these jobs in high performance are temporary and you know you bring people in and you, you get what you can out of them and then maybe it's time to bring someone else in. Say like a Simon Kadic now would be a perfect figure to come in yeah. and bring some cricket heart to that role. But what really gets me about the ball tampering is how it is responsible for identifying our coaches burnt out, our captains burnt out, our vice captains burnt out and reacting to them and he didn't. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of hinge points in where I think Australian cricket, cricket went wrong. And, you know, I can go back to 2007 when the empire started to fall with Warne and McGrath and Langer. And Australia is starting to try and compensate for a lack of skill with sledging. But I think if you go more recent to 2016, when Australia collapsed to South Africa at Hobart, Howard pulled the wrong reins. They preferred sticking with Darren Lehman, the coach, and sacking Peter Neville, their excellent wicketkeeper, who's a fine man, whereas I think at that Hobart point, perhaps getting rid of Lehman just because the Smith and Lehman combination wasn't working would have been more sensible. Can you imagine if Langer had come in then and been able to mould Smith and, and take him under his wing? But instead Howard went for, no, let's bring in Wade, and and be more abrasive.
0: Well, they were, they were, to be fair to Howard, that was the selectors doing, and I think the um, I think the captain had a fair bit to do with that. There was a desire to encourage Smith to create a team that um, that had a bit of. Bit of up and go about, mongrel. It. yeah, bit of mongrel. Um, and that—that that was a. I thought that was a bad sign when when Wade was was selected for sure. Um, it set off alarm bells, I think, all over the place. That a player was basically being chosen not because he was necessarily the best keeper. I don't think he was even in the best three or four keepers in Australia. It was there because he was kind of in your face and under your skin, the Australian way. He was in a. He was an espouser of of the Australian way, and we we got into this habit of kind of harking back to a sort of an imagined past, we, we've convinced ourselves that that's when we play our, our best cricket. It might be true of certain individuals, but I don't think it sits particularly well with the majority of the members of, of that team. And some of them, when they began to kind of ape those behaviours, just simply looked quite strange. When I heard Nathan Lyon at that press conference in 2017 before the Gabba test saying uh, that the England players were scared and that they were looking forward to ending careers and we were going to headbutt the line. I thought, well, where's that from? That's like, he just sounds like a ventriloquist dummy. But there was a, there was also a belief that, you know, when in Rome, you know, do as Darren Lehman. That's not necessarily to Lehman's discredit, but I think for every coach, it's a huge challenge to reinvent yourself periodically, to find a new dimension to your, to your coaching rather than to fall back on, on ancient ways. And from, Talking to players who represented Australia last summer, there was a sense that Lehman was really cooked. I mean, and it had actually been cooked for quite some time, that the team was basically running itself uh, without an awful lot of direction. Why didn't
1: Howard recognise this? That's his job. That is implicitly his role. All
0: right, let's leave Howard behind because
1: we've... I've hammered him enough on the show quite a lot. But so we we talked about Darren Lehman. One thing that I didn't know about was you write in your book that his health concerns that you know yeah, he was sure. a healthy yeah. man.
0: No, no. Some concerns about his uh, his appetites and uh, and his sort of after hours habits. The, the the sense of deprivation that he felt from being on the road for so long, you know, we do expect a hell of a lot from coaches. Lehman wanted that degree of control. Lehman wanted to be coach all the time. Uh, he didn't want to take breaks. You know, Periodically over the last few years, Justin Langer had filled in as a locum, even Trevor Bayliss. Lehman wasn't comfortable about that. Because yeah, was Langer just... wasn't happy with what he saw. Well, that's he? right. Uh, I think there was a degree of insecurity in, in Lehman um, at work there. Perhaps he didn't feel particularly... Protected. Didn't, didn't feel particularly insulated.
1: Well, the, so you're, you're,
0: you're right in the sense that it was up to Pat to ask questions like that, but it should have been within the remit of other people to ask those questions. And perhaps the problem is not so much Pat as it is that if Pat doesn't have the idea, then the idea does, just doesn't get had. Perhaps it's the sense that the uh, that the cricket is a kind of a closed loop where no one wants to speak out of turn. I, I know I've heard many whispers that that Lehman was quite belligerent
1: towards criticism directed at his team uh, when journalists would put criticisms to him. He was used to get him very upset.
0: Sure, and he was, and he had his favourites too. He had players that he liked to who adhered to a sense of values that he was comfortable with. He didn't like players who kind of were a bit independent, a bit different, uh, who maybe didn't imbibe um, the Australian way, who were inclined to talk back. He tried to create an Australian team in his own image. Now, there are, there are pluses and minuses to that. We, always, we, we often have this idea that, you know, everyone should be looking in the same direction, everyone should be seeing things exactly the same way, the team should be absolutely united. It's a little bit similar to political parties, We think, you know, absolute political parties should be completely singing off the same songbook. But sometimes there needs to be a degree of liberality. There needs to be a degree of contestation. And perhaps not just in the Australian team, but in the Australian cricket system, there is a lack of contestation. That it's become a very top-down system. It's become a very conformist system. It's become a system that says it's my way or the highway. There are a lot of people around in Australian cricket saying that, not just Pat Howard. It's lost the sense that Australian cricket used to have of being... Well, for for 100 years or more, Australian cricket ran as a federation. Let's face it, the states owned Cricket Australia and kept it on a relatively short leash. Since the advent of the independent board in 2012, it's become a, an increasingly top-down organisation where things are mandated at Jollymont and everyone has to get on board and no one gets the opportunity to ask any questions.
1: Yeah, depressing. Um, well, I'm here with Gideon Hay. Gideon's just released a fantastic book, Crossing the Line, that fleshes out a, little bit, a lot of what we're talking about in great detail. Very much worth a read. Sticking with uh, Darren Lehman, a couple of other things I think he uh, he's responsible for. He enabled David Warner at times to be the bull and he came up with this sort of mythical line concept. You know, he was the one that sort of espoused that and he mentioned ball tampering before. Yes. He probably didn't set clear enough boundaries for the team.
0: Well, he set boundaries, very rubber boundaries for Warner. That's for sure. I, I think that there were people in the Australian setup who were a bit concerned about how far warner was prepared to push things on the field but they were not listened to or they were actually told off that's a that's a bad sign when you basically create a culture of kind of impunity that that sort of has no consequences don't forget at the same time that warner had actually been prepared to be different last year during the pay dispute he he was well actually he was quite tough um he was quite forthright where the Australian cricketer's entitlement to a, a revenue share was, was concerned. And he won himself no fans at, um, at at CA. Perhaps as a result of what happened at the end of that dispute, uh, he felt subtly reinforced and uh, and and entitled.
1: Yes. Moving on from Darren Lehman, I still feel, though, before we leave Lehman behind, I kind of feel like he did his best. I, I feel that, as I said, it should have been other people that recognised that he Was getting burnt out or had been in the job for too long. I, I, I do think he is kind of this knockabout bloke that might have been out
0: of his depth. When you appoint someone like Darren Lehman, you know what you're going to get. Uh, when they appointed him in 2013, he dug them out of a huge hole. It was a team that had become very anxious, very divided. Uh, the dynamic between, once again, the dynamic between captain and vice captain was, was a negative between Clark and, uh, and, and Watson. Uh, there was a sense of a coach who was kind of slightly out of his depth. There was a sense of an Australian system that had reached a, an unfortunate pass. Once again, the loss of a, of, a, of a group of experienced players. You put Lehman in there because he was a kind of a known quantity. He would deliver you a, the, exactly the kind of outcome that, that he did. Uh, he, he went in, he kind of relaxed people, he, he got people kind of, he wrapped his meaty hands around their just shoulders. Just go out and, and whack just it. Just go out and whack it. And that actually, frankly, is what they needed, frankly, at, at that at that stage. And he just so happened to have the great fortune to have Mitchell Johnson come and experience the form of a lifetime. And that kind of blessed everything that uh, that, 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 that happened around him. But, right. but sometimes that's the most difficult... They're the most difficult points to make, aren't they? The, no one wants to be a party pooper. When a team succeeds... No one wants to be the one to say, "Well, hang on just a second. Maybe we got a bit lucky. Maybe there are some freakish circumstances here maybe they' they're very those kind of people are very quickly shut down those people are very quickly ignored, particularly in you know in in a game of cricket which is structured as a monopoly, there is a tendency to um uniformity and 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 conformity and I think under the guise of kind of unit, unity and togetherness. So we can beat England, hashtag. Yeah, and periodically <laughs> we go out and we beat England, and we everyone feels better about that.
1: All right, so as you notice, in the blame pie, we haven't got to Steve Smith yet, because I think, you know, Warner, Bancroft, Lehman, Howard might all be res- more responsible than Steve Smith. You know, looking at his behaviour over the last year, there was very clear window into his soul and he used to say things like he didn't sleep but his histrionics his heightened emotions Mm. his overreaction to things um, you know one minute swearing f this when there was a decision in India to laughing uncontrollably at a press conference about a headbutt in in the first Ashes test he was unable to manage the emotions of being Australian captain
0: he's always been a very demonstrative character is very obvious when things are not going well you looked at Ricky Ponting and well maybe to choose an even better example Steve Waugh you never knew when things were going badly with Steve Waugh he was always the same individual on the field uh, for, for better and worse Steve Smith it would be very easy in that in that side to kind of look at the captain and go you know things aren't we're not travelling well at this stage. There were signs, certainly in South Africa, that he was, uh, particularly when his form began to attenuate, it uh, was the first experience he'd really had of his own form being under pressure at the same time as his captaincy. And you know, those things can be very, very difficult for a, for a captain to bear. You know, even Mark Taylor, in the worst of his form travails, at least was at the head of a successful team throughout. Uh, there was never any doubt of his credentials as a captain, But once Steve's batting form began to fail, you began to wonder, well, what else does he bring? He's not a particularly inspirational character. He's not a particular tactical genius. He doesn't have a particular set of pastoral skills. He's not a statesman. He's not a great motivator. He's not a great ambassador. I think he began to, to doubt himself quite sincerely and with good reason.
1: And that moment in the Cape Town dressing room where he might have seen something was going on, that was his sliding doors moment where had he stepped in and said, what are you up to? This is not on. We wouldn't be here having this conversation. But I want to take it a bit further back and I think something that really displays how how far Smith had got away from himself maybe or was um, a, good, a good friend of yours, Ed Cowan, At the beginning of last summer, he was left out of the first match of for New South Wales when the season before he'd been the leading run scorer in the Shield and won the 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 it might have been the Shield o- Player of the Year yeah, yeah and the Steve yeah. o- Medal yeah. or something so yeah. he, you know he came into that season all but you would think assured of a spot in the first Shield get match but he was Smith I think instrumental in making the call to leave him out for Daniel Hughes as a sign because perhaps Hughes might play for Australia one day I think that showed that Smith had had lost clarity. Because you just go out to win the game, you pick your best team, whether it's New South Wales or Australia, and you try and win, and then, then you will get the right results. And I just think that displayed perhaps the first signs that Smith was starting to crack.
0: Well, the strange thing was that, um, that he purportedly made that call. I don't think it was only his call, but he was pur- purportedly in favour of that call because he thought that there was going to be a continuation of the policy that had been established the previous year about bringing on younger players. Your Hanscoms and your Renshaws and your Maddensons and, you know, wanted to create opportunities for them. But in fact, when it came to it, when the first test team was chosen, you know, in fact, by the Perth test, none of those players who'd been chosen at Adelaide the previous years was, were still in the team. That was, the, that was the strange thing about it. It was that the, the captain and the selectors were completely a deviance. But also, what message is that to the cricket community, to cricketers out
1: there, no matter your age, that you can be the, the, the awarded player from the season before but left out because of some mandate from the high-performance department? It's
0: a ridiculous message. That, it's that's a, exactly right. It's a superb right. and contradictory message that confuses everyone Now, cricketers basically want to know that if they perform, they'll get recognised. It's really pretty simple, and it's a system that's worked since 1877, but all of a sudden somehow we think we know better. I think that it's partly to do with the fact that the game is so much wealthier, that um, the expenditure rises to meet income. We've got all this money to spend on talent development, and we're jolly well going to spend it. We're not going to bother with that silly old hat system that one just sort of ticks over nicely. We can find a better way. There's a touch of arrogance and a touch of insularity about it and it's I think it's instigated by a set of people who just have too much time on their hands. Mm. Too much time on their hands and they do too much thinking. They overthink what's fundamentally a pretty simple game.
1: Absolutely. I can tell you Gideon having read some of your stuff we could do a whole other podcast on the selectors that could go on for hours. <laughs> Now, moving on from Steve Smith to end this review, I've got here David Peaver and James Sutherland, what responsibility they sort of have for the the slipping culture of the Australian team. And I think the most pertinent point you made in your book was that Peaver and Sutherland allowed the Australian cricket team to be framed as the enemy during the pay dispute. So it was very easy for the media when they did the ball tampering for them to use the
0: same tactic and the public too you know the public reached the end of the pay dispute kind of confused about who they were meant to be on the side of which is strange because you would have thought that the Australian cricketers are the most valuable assets that uh, that, that cricket Australia has and yet they were kind of degraded and belittled and damaged by the by the pay dispute, with the, with the best will in the world, there was then a weird sense that we're all in this together. That kind of strange, kind of ashes euphoria that, that we you know we all get on the same page. But once again, the dividing line opened up pretty quickly in uh, in in South Africa. It's strange to me still that the players paid so quickly and so injuriously as a result of of what transpired. But I haven't heard really much I've heard expressions of regret from Cricket Australia but I haven't heard great a sense of contrition or sense of culpability perhaps they will emerge when these reviews are eventually published eventually assuming they are Uh, but frankly they won't be they won't be published obviously before the annual general meeting on October the 25th and to me that's just astonishing If the states aren't urgently interested in the impressions of an expensive independent reviewer of the culture of Australian cricket governance now, then they never will be. Uh,
1: You know, I'm not a big fan of Peaver, but I don't know how responsible he is for the sort of ball tampering stuff. I think he, he, you, you do, and I would suggest reading Gideon's book will give you a sort of a good picture of where Peaver fits into this. But you know, I want to talk about James Sutherland, the outgoing CEO. Because I actually think he's got off pretty lightly from all this. So he's been in the job almost 20 years. He's He is the most experienced person at Cricket Australia. He's seen this rapid growth of the game. When this blew up, I don't think he he played very well in a cricket parlance. I actually think he should have supported our players more. He should have pushed back a bit. He, he, it's not always about which way the wind is blowing when you're the, the leading in an organisation. And, and if anyone should have dealt with the crisis better. I think Sutherland just just didn't
0: appear to to handle the situation very well. He didn't read the room, that's for sure. That was um, talk about Steve Smith's press conference. James's um, in Jollymont that, uh, later that morning wasn't all that much better. Curious thing about the public response is that over the last three or four years, Cricket Australia has been obsessed with the fan, hasn't it? It's just... Constantly been trying to kind of take the soundings in the market, put a thermometer into the Turkish bath to take the temperature. They say that it's it's all about the fan experience now. That's even more of a priority than the than the performances of, of, of the national team, and yet they got in the course of their market research. Pretty negative vibes about the Australian team, Gemba was commissioned to, uh, to survey the recognisability and the likability of the Australian team, and they were both in a downward trend for, for the last two years. Fans were just not happy with with the Australian team, the way in the way in which they behaved, the way in which they were playing their kind of inconsistently the inconsistency, the constant turnover of, of the side and yet it seems as though CA ignored its own data. It jumped to the conclusion that, well, frankly, all the, the public care about is if the team wins. And if we throw enough resources at the problem, we can ensure that they'll win and everyone will be happy. That was a very superficial reading of the relationship mm. between the Australian cricket team and the and the Australian public. And the Australian public reminded them that ultimately, the players play with their permission and their indulgence and they're not to be taken for granted. There is a shift this year, consistent
1: messages the current Australian teams, men and women, want to make Australians proud, which I think is very no, a very not a very simple thing. But I think maybe the team forgot that. Yeah, maybe. For a while, maybe. Finally, the last bit of the blame pie for me is South Africa, because I think that you know they constantly flout ball tampering laws. They allowed people to taunt David Warner with Sonny Bill Master, their South African cricket staff caught on camera posing, getting Rabada off the suspension. I think all played a big factor, and you know they're no. <laughs> Uh, Saints, the oh, absolutely. South Africans, No, it was a race but, to the bottom and but, we won, but but, um, but it was have definitely learnt a race. Off them. We should have learnt off them. When they were captain was accused of ball tampering in Australia, they actually rallied around their team and supported them.
0: And it seemed blindly stupid to
1: an outsider, but Sutherland could have supported our players more.
0: Well, don't forget that when we talked before about the fatigue factor, I think there's a fatigue factor with Australian administrators. You know, we got to the back end of a very long summer it, traditionally, that time of year, on, a lot of people go on holidays in, uh, at, at CA. They're, they're exhausted too. They were blindsided by this. They didn't see it coming. That's a failure of the local management as well as the, as the, as the management at, uh, at, at Jollymont. And I think they were astonished at how rapidly it developed and it really did you know just changed the complexion of, uh, of everything in a, in a, in a trice uh, it was unprecedented they'd never had to call this kind of inquiry into um, into player behaviour before it's still the team manager for the Aussie team it is it is but you know I don't think um, no one is innocent but some are more guilty than others very well put so I guess we've come to the sort of end of our review uh,
1: any anything you, didn't you want to add
0: one of the one of the problems with talking about Australian cricket these days is that we, we've fallen into this habit of referring to it as a system. I don't like systems. I don't want to be part of a system. I want to play a game. But we've it no longer savors of a game. It savors of a centralised and, and sort of bureaucratised cricket factory where the kind of the organic processes that we used to roll on to develop our cricketers have kind of been suspended in favour of rankings and metrics and careers. I mean, like, like dividing the a of the shield, degrees. dividing a grade yeah. cricket. and I think that it feels inauthentic. And even if the public couldn't put their finger on that, they couldn't articulate that feeling, they sense it. Uh, they, they sense it through the way in which you know their play, their team goes about playing on the... on a a test match field, but also what's happening at at lower levels of the game. There's a sense of dislocation, there's a sense of anxiety about the future of of the game. And I think all those things came to the fore uh, last year. This wasn't simply about a bad cricketer scratching a cricket ball with a piece of sandpaper. This was a kind of an expression of confusion and indignation and apprehension and anxiety about... I think the pace at which the game's developed over the last 10 years, it's a game that in a very sh- relatively short period of time has become almost unrecognisable. And it's a game in which only the players seem accountable. The players seem extremely accountable, but everyone else kind of gives themselves a bit of a free pass. They're protected from the consequences of their own action. You need only look at the fact that David Peaver will shortly be saddling up for a second three-year term. Does no one ask any questions about we the have. His chairman's performance? Kevin Roberts has just been promoted to the role of Chief Executive Officer of Cricket Australia. He's been involved at CA since 2012 as an independent director, subsequently became a member of the executive. How seriously has his performance in that role been assessed? Why does he automatically get promoted? Where are the benchmarks for him by by which he's judged? Perhaps we've just become so obsessed with financial outcomes within the game, that's the only way that we can create ourselves anymore. And there was this tremendous sense of bonhomie and tremendous sense of vindication when we sold the television rights uh, for $1.2 billion. But really, should we have been that happy about the way in which the game was, was travelling? On all sorts of other metrics, it's not travelling anywhere nearly as well.
1: Well, the most alarming is the sort of participation at grassroots level, and as you say... You don't look now, but that's something we'll feel the effects of in ten years. I guess to to end this podcast, just to sort of look ahead, you think Justin Lang is the right man to guide this Australian team? I
0: think he's got. I think he's got. He's got certain attributes and certain values that fit very well with with this team. I suspect that he should probably have had the job two years ago, and that we missed a trick in not making that succession at the time. He would have been very good, I think, at regenerating that side, which how about had fallen 2016? into fallen into bad habits. Yeah, exactly. I think he's now getting a sense of how huge the task is. Sometimes I, you know, I look at his face in the dugout. And he does look like a man who's just the scales have fallen from his eyes when he understands, you know, just how much fixing he has to do let's not forget that by the time cricketers get through to the level of national selection you know they are pretty well fully formed in a lot of respects he's got to kind of retrofit them he's got to kind of retro engineer them he's got to tamper with mechanisms that are already pretty well established there's a limit to what a national coach can accomplish with within a system so the idea of kind of imbuing him with sort of messianic powers is perhaps a, a little bit uh, a little bit mistaken i think he's the best man at the moment, for sure, I think he'll need to consider it as a short-term appointment. That he should be constantly questioning whether he's capable of adding to things. This job wears people out very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the best will in the world, you know, Justin's got he's tremendously fit, tremendously strong, tremendously you know mentally adaptable. But he's once again, he's just flesh and blood. Players get sick of coaches. There's no doubt about it. They get sick of them in football. They Start get sick of warn them about Buchanan. They do. They they get they get sick of hearing the same things over and over again. And players need to be constantly challenged. That's the hardest thing in sport, not simply for players, but for coaches as well, as realising when you've done what you can.
1: Well, Gideon, thank you so much for coming on Cricket Unfiltered this week. It has been a A joy to go through this cricket review. I have been working on this all winter. I feel like we've come to some conclusions about this. The blame pie is pretty much complete now. I'll be releasing that graph as the summer approaches, hopefully before Cricket Australia release their review. We've done it a lot cheaper than Simon Longstar. Exactly. So, listeners, you've been listening to Cricket Unfiltered with Gideon Hay. I thoroughly suggest going out and buying Crossing the Line, an excellent book. I'll be back next week with a full review of the Pakistan v. Australia test series and all the cricket headlines. You've been listening to Cricket Unfiltered. I'm your host, Andrew Metzel. Thanks for downloading the show.